Hey, great songs. I like that. That's marvelous. Perfect. I'm glad some of the uh, Christmas songs have caught up with some of the changes in worship. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 12. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, includes a tremendous promise that I think is very applicable in any season, but especially this one. Uh, I got up this morning and really was eating dinner last night exhausted. And when I get that way, I start feeling like I may get sick. And I drove in, in fact, to the office and got here uh, about 10 before 9 or so, and I just couldn't get out of my car. I was that tired. So I texted everybody and said, I'm going home and working from there. And I did. And at about noon or a little bit before, I fell asleep and uh, came back and had some more strength and energy, worked the rest of the afternoon. And um, I'm now the uh, strong, handsome, good-looking thing you see tonight. All right? It just took a little bit more. Hey, quit laughing at that. Y'all hurt my feelings. But uh, um, that, that's all it took to uh, regain my strength. But um, in that time of weakness, I got a lot of insight into God's Word that I'm going to be preaching Sunday. I was struggling terribly with uh, the passage uh, I was uh, wrestling with and uh, had some breakthroughs this afternoon at a point of weakness. Well, there's a promise like that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and um, Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Jesus says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Uh, the word perfect is oftentimes um, a stumbling block for some as we read the text. We think of moral perfection and thank God one day that day is coming. But that's really not the meaning of the text here. Um, you, you could uh, think instead of the word um, mature or graduated. Uh, that uh, oftentimes the word telos found here in the text was translated mature or graduated or complete or finished. Um, and that, that's what Christ's strength can be. In other words, Jesus says there is a place in our life where the strength that we have in him, his strength, um, is a complete experience. We have the full experience of the strength of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that many Christians only touch the hem of the garment of God's strength. And there's a reason why that's the case. But, or if they are at full strength, the full experience of the strength of Christ, it's momentary. It, it may last a few days, and then they're back to their own weakness and, and don't experience it. I would like to see a church full of folk that know what it's like to live consistently the full measure of the strength of Christ. Now, God has given some of us a life where we just don't have a choice. I don't have a choice. The decisions that come my way and fly at me on a daily basis, I have got to have the full measure of the strength of Christ. Uh, having the kind of uh, family composition that I do, and with, uh, in addition to that, with recent trials that we've had, I have got to have the full measure and full experience of the strength of Christ. Um, and uh, so some of us uh, get, get to experience the full strength of Christ not because we're mature, not because we're superior. In fact, you're going to find from the text that's far from the case. Some of us do just because God's forced us into a life. God's called us into a life. God's given us providential circumstances to where we stay flat on our face all the time. 
And I've got to tell you, that's a good place to be. It really is. So the question is, how in the world can I have the full measure, the full experience of the strength of Jesus Christ in this exhausting season? Now, before I answer that question, let me um, uh, address a textual item here. Uh, Paul said that uh, I had a marvelous experience, a very super spiritual experience that uh, few have ever had in verses 1 through 6. And then he said in verse 7, um, uh, to keep me from being exalted because of that experience and thinking I'm better than others, uh, a messenger of Satan was sent to me and uh, to buffet me. And um, as a result, I have a thorn in the flesh. Now, many have contemplated and uh, prognosticated and speculated on the meaning of the thorn in the flesh. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Some have uh, proposed anything from lustful temptation to an affliction with his eyes, some physical malady there. Uh, some have proposed, um, can you believe it, baldness. Uh, not many of those, but there's always someone in the crowd trying to take a shot at us. But uh, anyway, that there are a variety of opinions and thoughts uh, about that. Uh, however, uh, Paul, I think, actually defines it in the text. And that's the thing to do with biblical words and biblical phrases. Oftentimes, the best dictionary for biblical words and phrases is the text itself. Okay? So he says in verse 7, Lest I should be exalted because of my experience, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Concerning it, I asked the Lord to take it away. He said, No, my grace is sufficient. Therefore, verse 9, most gladly, I will rather boast in my thorn in the flesh. Is how I'm paraphrasing it. I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, any kind of physical weakness, in reproaches when people publicly embarrass me, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, from when I'm weak, that I'm strong. The thorn in the flesh happened to be the totality of the difficulties he faced because he was a missionary. He was doing God's will, and because he did God's will, there were difficulties that came with that. And so it's the totality of the difficulties that accompanied him because he was on the mission field. Whether it's having to drink fermented mare's milk, eating bugs, uh, malaria... Uh, whether it happens to be dysentery, uh, whatever it happens to be. So the difficulties that come with missionary service. In other words, and I know you're not on the mission field, but the text is still applicable to you. A thorn in the flesh happens to be any difficulty that accompanies you because you're doing the will of God. And he said, they're all over the place, verses 9 and 10. There's all kinds of items that go into the thorn in the flesh. But I'm doing God's will. There are difficulties that come with it. So I am not going to whine and complain. Instead, I'm going to boast about them. And I am going to take pleasure in them. That's what he's going to do. So I, I think the text defines what thorn in the flesh is. So I want to draw your attention then to just a few items here uh, with the hope and promise that you can have the full measure and experience of Christ's strength when you're weak. Now, let's just unfold the text here. There are three things in the text I want to draw your attention to. And the first is this, the subtlety of pride. 
Pride will kill strength every time. And it's terribly subtle. Oh, it's, it's terribly subtle. It's nasty. Uh, it's awful. Uh, it lurks. It is a terrible thing. And it will kill and prevent and hinder and extinguish strength at every juncture. And it's very subtle. Uh, in verses uh, 1 through 5, uh, it can linger in great spiritual experiences. Now look at verse 1. Uh, Paul said, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, uh, but I'll come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, and he's speaking of himself, who for 14, who 14 years ago, whether in body I don't know, or whether out of body I don't know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now you know, biblically, there are three heavens. Uh, the atmosphere here is one, uh, space is another, and God's presence is the third. All right, so that's not all that mysterious. So he's talking about actually going into the presence of God where the throne happens to be in heaven. So uh, I was caught up into heaven. And I know such a man, whether in body or out of body, I don't know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. There's some great things God has in store for us that, is, that are prohibited from being told here. He said, I went to heaven and I heard these things, verse 5, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I'll not be a fool, for I'll speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me, uh, what he sees me or hears me, uh, hears from me. So Paul's saying, I had this marvelous experience of entering into the very paradise and throne room of Almighty God. And I heard things there that I cannot tell you about. So he had a wild spiritual experience that uh, we're not aware that anyone else has ever had other than the Apostle John, what he wrote in Revelation. Okay. Now, this is an experience that might make someone proud. Now, one of the things you're going to uh, stumble over and be very confused about when it comes to pride is that you can think that when you get spiritual, you are relieved from the temptation of being proud. Oh, no. Folks, there are a lot of spiritually oriented people that are insufferably proud. And I really started my Christian life that way. I did. Oh, I was insufferable. Until I had a couple of teenagers in my youth group confront me about it. And God broke my heart. I just couldn't believe it. Uh, and and I, I wasn't, you know, everybody else knew I had a problem with it except for me. And that's the way pride is. See? Because I was winning people to Jesus. I was being called on for leadership. I was being affirmed, really, for the first time in my life. And uh, I, I got really arrogant and proud and dismissive of people. And um, really spiritually snooty in many ways. Let, let me tell you something. When people get spiritual, they are oftentimes more vulnerable to pride than the person who isn't oriented that way. Oh, you've got to be terribly, terribly careful. You would think that being spiritual would prevent that. Sometimes it sets it aflame. And that's what Paul's talking about here. That's why he says, verse 7, don't look at me like I have a snake on my head. That's what you're doing now. Look at verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in my flesh was given to me. See, he could be exalted in that. Now, what happens is the moment you become proud, you quench the Holy Spirit, and then you have to live off of yesterday's experiences and you don't continue growing. Yesterday's prayers, yesterday's insights, uh, yesterday's memories, yesterday's movement of God. So pride can lurk 
uh, in spiritual experiences. But there, there's another way it's subtle. It can lurk in spiritual people. Um, do you know anyone outside of Jesus who in the New Testament is more spiritual than the Apostle Paul? As recent as uh, the other day, I was speaking with a missionary who says our model for our missions ministry is precisely what the Apostle Paul did. Uh, in fact, uh, Bill Ricketts talked about that Wednesday night. How he entered, he engaged, he evangelized, he equipped, and he exited. The 5E strategy of the Apostle Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know anyone from 2,000 years ago other than Jesus and Paul that we are speaking about? The, the biblical authors? Nobody knows anything that happened 2,000 years ago outside of New Testament history. No one's aware of that. These are the only persons that continue in our memory. We don't know really of many other people more spiritual than the Apostle Paul. And I've got to say, if the Apostle Paul was vulnerable to pride, how much more us? So pride is terribly, terribly um, subtle. So uh, the question uh, that some may be asking in despair is, is there nothing in this world free from the danger of pride? And the answer is no. You've got to watch it every step of the way. Now that makes some things necessary. Paul said again in verse 7, lest I should be exalted above measure because of my spiritual experiences, I got a thorn in the flesh that made me terribly weak. So that leads to the second thing. And that is not only the subtlety of pride, but the statement of afflictions. Just what exactly do the afflictions that we experience state about us? What, what do our afflictions say about us? Well, look what Paul said in verses 7 through 9. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now this is what his afflictions are saying about his spiritual condition. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, I might, that it might depart from me. And the Lord said to me, well, if you'd repent and get sent out of your life, you wouldn't have these afflictions. Now, is that what he said? Uh, I don't believe that's what he said at all, did he? Uh, if you weren't so backslidden, you wouldn't have these afflictions, right? You have this thorn in the flesh because there's some hidden sin in your life, right? Is that what he said? Did, did he say, you have these afflictions in your life because you lack faith? Or you fail to plant a seed of a financial gift in a television ministry? Did he say that? No. Yeah, yeah you heard me. I'm calling some people out. Sure enough. By the way, that $62 million jet that one Atlanta preacher wants, I still want one. It's hard to get from Bogart to the church every day. If y'all could arrange that, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> well, if I get one, I'm not coming to here. Anyway, um, but, but did Paul say this is because of your lack of faith? It's because of your backslidden, immature condition? Is it because you failed to give a gift? Is it because of some sin in your life? No. What kind of statement did these afflictions make in Paul's life? Here's what Jesus said. He said to me, my goodness, those words, reflect on those. Jesus is saying to me, not some misguided man or woman, not some person that thinks they're spiritual and is bound up with pride. No, no. 
He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's why he had the affliction. Not because of backsliding, not because of a failed gift, not because of a lack of faith. Now, we could, we could do to grow in faith, and I do believe we would see God do a lot more specifically if we prayed believing prayer, which has been completely lost upon the church, especially Southern Baptists last 30 years. I think we can improve on that. I think that we could greatly improve some things by giving. So, so I'm not minimizing giving and the power of giving, and I'm not minimizing the uh, power of faith. But many times, and in my observation, and this is merely my observation, most of the time, the afflictions in people's lives have little to do with giving or faith or sin. They have mostly to do with what you find in verses 7 through 9. So what kind of statement? What kind of statement is made about the apostle and what is made sometimes about us regarding our afflictions? Well, the hint here is in verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan. Do you know what Paul's afflictions and infirmities state about him? They state about him that he was worth messing with and he got the devil's attention. And that very well could be what's taking place with you. It could be that you're walking in faith, you're walking in the Spirit, you're walking in obedience, and you are too much a powerhouse before God and a tool in the hands of God for demonic powers to ignore. And you got to know that when you walk with God, when you are seeking Him, when you're praying believing prayer, when, when you are taking the Word seriously, when you seek the filling of the Holy Spirit, you really care about a lost and dying world, and it's going to show up in your lifestyle and in your giving and all these other areas, when that's the case, you have got the attention in hell. And in fact, in hell, they are on a first-name basis with you. you got a bullseye on your back. Paul did, and therefore... A messenger of Satan gave him a thorn in the flesh, which I think, again, is summarized in verses 9 and 10. So it's not because you lack holiness necessarily. If that's the case, let's get that right. It's not necessarily that you lack giving. If if that's a problem, let's get that right. It may be the contrary. The more we are used by God, the more we attract demonic attention. And if we are not afflicted in these ways... It may not be that we're right with God. It may be that we're not worth messing with because we're not doing sufficient damage to the kingdom of hell. See, So contrary to some of the silly prosperity thinking out there, the reality is, is those who walk with Christ do end up suffering. Has anybody ever heard the name Job? Has anyone ever heard the name Jesus? So the statement heaven may be making about you and your afflictions may not be a rebuke. The statement may be an affirmation. That may be what God's doing with you. So there's the subtlety of pride, and the text then talks about the statement of afflictions. But then the the text finishes with the strength of God. Verses 9 and 10. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. I remember... When uh, my bride and I were uh, first married, uh, we got married in East Tennessee and went back to um, Texas to finish school. 
And uh, then we went to um, back to East Tennessee where I pastored uh, a centrifuge camp for the summer. And uh, this all registered with her dad. And he asked us and said to us, so you mean at the end of the summer you're unemployed riffraff? <laughs> well, what an encouragement. He, he's just got a way of telling it like it is. And uh, we said, well, we don't know really what that means, but no, I'll get a job of some kind. And, and we did. I went to pastor in South Carolina uh, after that. But never in our married life have we uh, been able to live anywhere near the mountains until we arrived uh, in uh, Athens. We're closer to the mountains than we've ever been. And for the first time in our married life, she's satisfied with the location where we've lived. She is. Uh, and it's not only the location, it's the people, it's the church, it's the role uh, that we're in. Uh, if you know anything about Appalachian people, they have a very hard time leaving the mountains. If you'd lived there, you'd know it. <laughs> I mean, when you grow up in the Garden of Eden, uh, it's hard to leave. And can you imagine what it was like for Adam and Eve to be booted out of the Garden of Eden? Here they are 10 and 20 years beyond that. You know? They're watching Seths and uh, children grow up and they remember what it was like in the garden. That's what it's like for mountain people all up and down the Appalachian Mountains. Research has been done on them to where they never get over leaving the mountains. And so the places where I pastored and served have really been a quiet, almost desperate trial for her. They have been. Um, she hasn't complained at all, but in some teary moments, we've talked about it. And then, after serving in the Southeast for so long, God sent us to Texas. And not East Texas, which looks like East Tennessee. Fort Worth, Texas, where it looks like the moon in, at, on the best day. All right? And, and so that, that's the kind of thing that you've got in her life. She's done the will of God, has not whined, has not complained. And here's what I told her one day. Uh, I, pr I prayed about it, thought about it, and I said, you know, somehow or another, uh, it's better for you to be outside Appalachia than it is to be inside if it was better for you and his son in the kingdom that's exactly where you would be and sometimes we got to remind missionaries of that we've got to remind others and these are the kinds of circumstances that God is creating in the life of his people I've got to tell you something it did something to her prayer life did something to her search of the word and frankly she could deliver the content of this passage a lot better than I could because she suffered in um, that way for 23 years. So God, here's, what, uh, here's what the Lord says about uh, his strength. My grace is sufficient. That's the thing. It is sufficient. For my strength is made perfect. You get the complete experience of my strength in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and all the other difficulties that come with doing the will of God. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Uh, so, Paul says, I'm going to boast about these thorns. 
I'm going to take pleasure in them. And I don't believe he's exaggerating. You know, the rest of the scripture uh, addresses some similar themes. Psalm 76.10, even the wrath of man will praise you. The rage of the nations and the rage of um, royalty in the Gentile nations, among the Philistines and the Canaanites, even that, God will gather it and arrange it to praise his name. Every work of the devil will be rearranged and revolutionized to lift up the name of Jesus. Every one of them. And don't ever get bored with Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God and those who are called according to us. Never get bored with that. Uh, don't do that with Romans 8, 28 or John 3, 16 or Genesis 1, 1 or any other text. That is meaningful and it is a soft pillow on which to lay your head in the evening. And, and so he um, uh, repeats this message throughout the scripture. Now, why would Paul boast and take pleasure in his thorn? I think it's because when we come to the end of ourselves, it is then that we begin the full measure and experience of the strength of Christ. Um, I, I would encourage you, in the words of one of my fam- uh, favorite uh, singer-songwriters, Bruce Carroll, fight to be weak then. Th- that's the key here. He said, My strength is made perfect when you get weak. When you get to the point where there's no more strength, when you get to the point where you've exhausted your wisdom, when you get to the point where you cannot bring any peace or calm to your soul, when you're at that moment of weakness, get on your face before me, tell me about it, I'm going to come through, and you become the perfect candidate for the full measure and experience of the strength of Jesus Christ. That's what you do. You trust me. In that moment. So I understand verse 9 is really counterintuitive. Verse 9 fights against the flesh and the subtlety of pride, but he promises at the end of verse 10 when I am weak, then I am strong. And he's not engaging in paradoxical language, he's not just merely spinning a phrase. Really, really, when you come to the end of your strength, you are at the beginning of the strength of God. So fight to be weak. Stay that way. Now, do you know what that means? It doesn't mean that on your own you vacillate and traverse back and forth between strength and weakness. That's not what that means. And you know why? Because you really don't have any strength. You have some effort that you have perhaps mistakenly labeled strength. But we don't have any strength. We, we, we don't have any. Uh, we, we don't have any that will solve. Listen, I, I can tell you, I, I can tell when a child of God is not walking with God and not surrendered. They keep making one bumbling mistake after another. They go through three or four marriages They uh, keep getting thrown back financially over and over again. They are constantly at odds with members of the family. And and I'm not just talking about once or maybe twice, but but it's a lifestyle. And their history is a uh, wake of broken relationships, broken promises to credit card companies, marriage vows constantly 
And what really, really worries me is that in the young adult years, when so many of our young people drift from God and drift from His church and drift from fellowship, that's when they get romantical and get married and make the biggest mistake of their lives in a backslidden condition. And so they try to make one of the most important decisions of life that have implications for children in a backslidden state. You can tell. They just keep making one bumbling decision after another. Now listen, because of the subtlety of pride, they may be studying the Bible. They might say a prayer. They may attend church, but it is entirely possible to backslide. Uh, it's, as easy, it's as easy to backslide from a church pew as it is a bar stool. Just as easy. And so, we've got to fight to be weak. So we don't have strength in and of ourselves. So this does not mean that you go from your natural strength, which is pleasing to God, and you make yourself weak. That's not what that means at all. It means that you acknowledge that every moment of every day you're weak. And that's why I like that hymn, I Need Thee Every Hour. I think I might rewrite it. I need you every millisecond because I'm constantly weak. There's not a moment of my life when I'm not weak. So Paul is saying uh, something not merely about his condition. He's saying something about his recognition of his condition. When you recognize and admit that you're weak, then you're a candidate for the full measure of the power of God in your life. Uh, a Baptist pastor uh, was traveling through Australia. His name was uh, R.L. Uh, Laney. And he met a woman, uh, an Australian Christian woman, who had a powerful ministry and a tragic backstory. Uh, she was raised up, I, I believe, if, if I remember the story correctly, uh, in a Christian home. But uh, sometime, I think in her teenage years, maybe a little older, she developed some kind of unnamed malady uh, that required amputation. And they started with her feet, and they continued with amputation up to her knees, and then they continued with amputation up to her torso. And then it got into her limbs. And they had to amputate her hands, and then up to her elbow, then up to her shoulders. And by the time the amputations were done, she was simply a trunk, a neck, and a head. But she maintained her faith in Jesus. And she had her family arrange for a carpenter to come by and to build some kind of shoulder harness that would hold paper and pen. And she got a real nice calligraphy set. And she learned to write calligraphy and letters with her mouth, with the shoulder harness. And by the time R.L. Stacy had met her and visited with her, she had Bible verses and prayer requests plastered on every wall of her bedroom and letters returned to her because of her letters, her evangelistic letters, letters numbering 1,500 of people around the world who had received Christ because of her letters to them. When I am weak, then I am strong. You need to know something. If you intend to be used of God, 
You're going to have to know. God will intentionally and purposefully arrange your life to keep you weak before him. I just suggest you volunteer, (laughs) okay? That's what I would suggest. And thank God when we are, because his power is made perfect in weakness.